Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Leonardo da Vinci did not have a formal education, but he was a polymath, a word that I had to look up, but it means someone with a wide range of knowledge. His technological genius is famous. He drew engineering blueprints of flying machines, armored tanks, solar power, calculators. He's also credited with discoveries about the human body, about our anatomy. He studied the mechanical functions of skeletons and muscles. Because of this legacy, it is perhaps appropriate that a major initiative on electronic health records has been named the Da Vinci Project. The goal of HL7's Da Vinci Project is to help payers and providers positively impact clinical quality, cost, and care management outcomes. In short, to enable providers to see the right data at the right time. But Da Vinci is also, or perhaps mostly, famous for his paintings, for the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. So is there an art to developing health IT? Our guest today is Jocelyn Keegan with Point of Care Partners and Program Lead for the HL7's Da Vinci Project, and she will help us answer that question. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communications Committee Chair for WEDI, that's W-E-D-I, WEDI. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. To help us ponder all things Da Vinci, we do have Jocelyn Keegan, program lead for HL7's Da Vinci Project in our virtual studio today. And with her here, we have an excellent opportunity to talk about these questions. Welcome, Jocelyn, and so happy to have you on our show today. Thank you, Matthew. Super excited to be here, and thank you for Reedy for the opportunity to share the work that we're doing in Da Vinci and um, help people understand how they can get involved um, in joining. Good. Excellent. So to that point, I would like to ask you how you got involved uh, with not just Da Vinci, but how you got brought into health IT uh, in the first place. As you and I talked about earlier, uh, nobody uh, you know, <laughs> looks up at their fifth grade teacher and says, I want to go into health IT when I grow up. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal voyage there? Sure. Thanks. Um, I've actually been in health IT for a little over 10 years now. Uh, I actually started my career in financial services in the um, mid to early 90s uh, and really went through this wave of digitization and the freedom of data and the move to APIs uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and made a decision to be home with my kids for the first few years. Uh, so when I made the move to come back to uh, work full time, uh, I really made a, a, a decision to work in health IT because I could see the challenges um, that were out there. And, uh, and I sort of joke with my friends that I'm like, I have skills. I did a, a tremendous amount of change management work, uh, in my, um, in my first dozen years or so of working for, uh, Thompson financial at the time now Thompson Reuters really driving, uh, people from siloed, uh, work into developing service oriented architecture solutions, um, to bring product to market and really that first wave of, of APIs. And so, uh, as I arrived in early 2010 in us healthcare, 
Um, I was surprised that it looked as familiar as it did uh, and that the work at hand um, was really not radically different than it had been in a large complex organization that sold products to all sectors of financial services and that uh, I had my work cut out for me. I actually uh, initially worked at a company called uh, Navinet, which is now Nant Health Navinet, um, and, uh, and set to work working on solutions for prior authorization. Um, and after spending a few years there, actually bringing a standard uh, live into a normative status over at NCPDP, which is the pharmacy standards organization uh, that drives uh, automation of workflows over on the pharmacy side, I made a decision to uh, to go and work as a consultant, um, and in that, it had become apparent to me at my time at Navinet that as the um, folks at CMS were really pushing the industry with a giant lever in a, I think, fairly genius way to really drive payment reform under MIPS and MACRA, that the underlying rails were missing for that data to be able to flow that was going to be necessary to manage those contracts um, that were going to be based on clinical data. Um, and at and, and if provi providers were really going to go at risk in any way, that, the, that those pieces of the puzzle need to be put in place. And I'm thankful that when I got to Point of Care Partners, uh, my founder uh, and CEO of the company gave me enough rope um, to go spend some quality time at HL7 and find folks that had a similar belief set which is how I got involved in the very early days of DaVinci as a project. Um, and I would say really building on um, and standing on the shoulders of Project Argonaut, which initially used fire to free the data for clinical use um, for, for patients to get access to their own data. Uh, we were able to really construct something uh, that would, I think, um, get, get lift um, and adoption in the industry uh, between payers and providers. Good. So, I'm going to have to ask you to back up a little bit. Sure, I, I no lost you, I lost you a little bit when we had we when CMS was building a train, but they didn't have the tracks to actually get the train to go forward. And then you mentioned that um, then you went to HL7 or your 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 current company let you work with uh, HL7. So tell me what HL7 does. Uh, and then you talked about Argonauts as well. And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about what those train tracks uh, are actually supposed to look like if we're going to get to this value based payment um, model. Yeah, and I'll do a big picture. So in good, order good. for data to flow, right, in U.S. healthcare, you know, essentially there need to be standard formats for that data to flow. And there's a number of different standard development organizations that exist. Um, health Level 7, HL7 being one, it has really been the purview of where clinical data has moved in the industry today. That's really been their sweet spot. And a number of years ago, they invested in I would say a more modern-based standard, uh, which is called FIRE, Fast Health Interoperable Resources, which is really based on the same technology that powers our Amazon accounts or the UPS driver coming to your house or really anything um, that we interact with from you know, how you order an airplane ticket, this idea of bearing sort of all these inquiry, response, back and forth questions that don't always happen in, you know, um, you know, at an immediate, but maybe happen over the, a period of time. Um, FIRE is really geared towards using that more modern computing methodology to be able to get that work done. Um, and the reason that's important and the basis on which DaVinci is founded is really this idea of instead of paying a doctor for every time they see a patient, that really we wanted to pay and incent providers to do all the right things we all agree as an industry are going to make patients healthier. And so that's really a um, part of a shift from people being paid uh, what's referred to as fee for service 
to moving towards value-based care contracts. Um, and uh, really starting, you know, probably a dozen years ago, uh, even more so, uh, the folks at CMS uh, started to develop incentive programs for folks that were seeing Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients to start to get paid essentially an upside for doing those things that we know make patients healthier. Uh, and over time, um, more and more commercial payers have uh, really started to adopt that approach. And it's really, as we look at U.S. healthcare as an entity, you know, I think one of the keys that we're looking to unlock, how to control costs, how to make the U.S. population healthier. Uh, but in order for it to work, it means that both parties, the provider and the payer, really need to understand more data about the actual patient and their status from a health perspective. And that means more and more clinical data will need to be exchanged than previously would be shared between payers and providers. And fundamentally, the relationship between payers and providers are real is really shifting in the industry to one of more shared risk and you know, really trusted parties and partners. Um, and many healthcare organizations, whether it be a payer or a provider or an intermediary, are really morphing where there aren't really hard and fast straight lines between payers and providers. But really, we're seeing lots of different hybrid models out there in the market where we have, you know, provider organizations that are self-insuring and being what I think is a horrible term, but referred to as payviders. Um, and we're seeing more and more provider organizations or payer organizations make themselves look a little more like a Kaiser Permanente or a more wholly owned, you know, really all aspects of a patient by acquiring practices or building practices and clinics so that they can better provide care um, and better ensure that they can improve patient outcomes um, by wholly owning those practices as a payer. So terrific. So first of all, thank you very much for the clearest explanation of fire that I've ever had, actually. And, <laughs> and it makes much more sense to me now than it ever has before. I mean, it makes perfect sense that, you know, we're, we're using Amazon or actually using many different things to plan our vacations and we want a quality vacation. Uh, and it's absolutely impossible to build a healthcare system without that data and without those responses and queries uh, and, and have one based on quality in order to go forward. So Tell me uh, about the Da Vinci uh, project. Um, like you said, I think what was it? Meaningful use twelve years ago, and you know, putting up out the carrot to move people to electronic health records, to move the providers to health electronic health records. So why is why is a, a group like Da Vinci needed now? What is what is important about this historical moment, or what is important about this point in our progress towards building both the train and the tracks uh, that the Da Vinci was needed? So, I mean, I think that there's a couple factors that I would look at there, um, and some of them are happenstance, and I think some of them are about, to your point, a point in time. I think that we've reached a point in time where we're really shifting away from who is in those at-risk contracts from sort of the pioneers, right? We think about the ACOs and really people that have taken a big leap forward to a lot of their contracting at risk to really at-risk contracting be, being very prevalent um, and payers and providers increasingly expanding beyond one or two payers in their, in their, their market. But the, the tools that are being used today, you know, are either proprietary solutions um, or are sophisticated um, secure technologies like the FACS, Excel files, and FTPing large custom formats around, or PDFs that really aren't very usable beyond sort of just reviewing them, to really understanding if we're going to manage patient populations in a meaningful way, we really need to get to that world of what I refer to as codified data, that 
at a resource by resource level, you've got access to individual information so that you can move to programmatic ways to process that information and not rely on human beings. So how do we make, you know, the things that can be routine and be discoverable and be computable, computable, so that we use the human beings, we use those nurses, right? Or we use those MAs or we use the folks that are, you know, clinical clinicians working at payers for their highest, best purpose, and that we automate as much of sort of the underlying work that needs to be done uh, as possible. And so I would say where we started, gosh, almost four years ago in our journey with DaVinci was really asking that question to say, can we really take this emerging standard fire, you know, as it moves to a normative status, which means that it's going to change less and be a little bit more predictable, you know, as new versions come out. And can we really come up with solutions um, to solve real world business problems that exist between payers and providers? Um, And that there was a, I would say a pretty widespread agreement with a group of about 20 payers, providers, vendors that said, we think we can do this. And then when we did that, um, Apple announced that they were using the health kit and JP Morgan and a couple of their friends announced that they were getting into the fire game. And I think we went from saying, you know, we could have eight or 10 people commit some dollars to sort of testing out whether we could build one of these implementation guides to getting a lot more popular and uh, a lot busier than we ever anticipated. So when we ultimately founded the project, we actually had about 24 members that raised their hands and said, you know what, we all know we need to use fire. We know that we need solutions to get to more automation with value-based care. And we think that HL7 is the place to do this and that we think that fire is the tool that we can do that with. And I would say in those early days, there was no distinct decision to say it all had to be fire. It was just we are going to take time to come together with subject matter experts to say, what is the business problem we're trying to solve? Where does the workflow actually happen? And how can we leverage Firebase APIs to make that data flow between providers and payers and take friction and abrasion um, out of the equation between those two partners? So I, I like your that idea that when DaVinci started, there wasn't really a, a standard decided yet because I read one of the, your descriptions and one of your bios that said you were technology and standard agnostic, which is like a great phrase that I think I want to use on my resume, even though I'm not really sure what it means. I mean, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> but um, let me let me ask you. So HL7. I, I'm going to actually pause you for a second yeah, go and I'm going to dig into that because I think it's it really does. important. This is something that I have believed. I have an undergraduate in history. I am not a technologist by training, but I've always found myself between technology and business. It's just the way that my brain is wired. And I'm like, oh, there's a big problem. It's not a problem. It's a system problem. Let's fix it, right? But I think that you need to bring um, this belief that no one technology is better than the other. And you have to be pragmatic if you're going to make incremental changes. And incremental changes are fundamentally what makes large waves of change happen. I'm a a firm believer that there is no one only solution that will work. And there is definitely no big bang required at any point in time. You have to make incremental changes to really make the systemic kind of changes that just seem like they were a big wave when they actually finally happen. Well, and it sounds like that big, you know, like the way you describe HL7 and the DaVinci project is it really, it, it, it was small until it was big. Right. Like it was a little bit, a little bitty changes. And then there, there was there was a, a big bang at one point, but it, it had a buildup to it. So uh, what would you say the HL? So what, what made HL7 different? 
Uh, was there something about that context? I mean, in the show, we we talk to associations that do have payers and providers in those same associations, and and they 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 advocate for certain uh, shared goals and things like that. Why was HL seven a little different? Did it did it have to do with that agnosticism? So I think that there's a couple of things to unpack there. I think the first is I think that. Um, the work that needed to be done had to be standards-based. And I think with my payer sort of hat on, and I get to work, you know, I've clearly all of my time in healthcare has been between payers and providers. Um, Generally me sort of advocating as a product manager on how you needed to make things better and more user-centric and usability-focused from a provider perspective, like build something people will actually use. You can build lots of stuff. If you don't keep the user in mind, it's never gonna get used, right? So I think that, That HL7 sort of incremental approach to building standards was incredibly important. The work itself being standards-based was very important to the early founders, that they weren't going to build something that people could opt in or opt out of, but that eventually could be named into regulation, and that it was a recognized entity because of CCDA and version 2, earlier HL7 existing standards was incredibly important, I think, for some of the founding members, for them to say, this is somebody that I can actually hand this check to that will be trusted, and this standards aspect was important. But I also think, to your point, where we were as a point in time and momentum is incredibly important and I think should never be discounted, right? So I think it became a place where a number of players were saying, where's my first place I'm going to use FIRE? What's Mm -hmm. my business value or my business case? In similar to our, you know, much beloved friend, the fax machine, with an API, you need to have multiple people, people using it to derive the value, right, of implementing it. And so if people knew that there were going to be others at the party and that other people are going to be, it feeds into itself. And so DaVinci, I think, in a lot of ways became the place where, where payers and provider organizations and the IT vendors that support both of them could shake their heads and say, this is the place I'm going to start my fire program. This is the use case I'm going to be able to explain ROI on and get my, my organization to give me not just the technical resources, but the, the subject matter experts that understand the, the domain problem. Because the work that we're doing in the fire accelerators is incredibly human powered, right? This isn't about write a check and somebody goes out and solves the problem. We get our work done because we get the brains that understand the business problem on the phone, figuring out what the use case and the workflow is, paired with the people that know HL7 Fire better than anybody, right? And we get to pay them a little bit of money to bring them to the table as resources or get them as in-kind resources from some of our member organizations. And we can pair those things together to make it so that we can build standards at a speed that I don't think anyone anticipated that we could. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and what you're describing, right, is the network effect, right? The Facebook right. effect. You get enough people on it, it makes it that much more valuable. But you're, you're also talking about, in terms of a standard organization, uh, what you're saying is the, the relationship of HL7 to the government. In other words, there is the idea that um, when, when the when participants come in, they now have this feeling that, well, I'm actually not just uh, doing a not even like a pilot. I'm actually doing something that will, will may get adopt, adopted sometime. So we're headed towards a real place. And, and then as you explained, the practical application is huge, right? Like it's, it's great that you have a flying contraption, but until you see where that flying contraption can bring you, then you don't know. So thank you, Jocelyn. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Jocelyn Keegan, health IT consultant with Point of Care Partners and project lead for HL7's DaVinci Project. 
For now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. Be sure to mark your calendars for these upcoming Weedy events. On April 7th, an overview of the HIPAA Notice of Proposed Rulemaking with OCR's Marissa Gordon-Wynn. This is a Weedy member-only event. On April 21st, leveraging interoperability to advance value-based care. This is free to the industry, sponsored by Nant Health. On April 28th, Ready, Set, Comply, meeting the information blocking challenge. Free to the industry and sponsored by MCG. And in May, be sure to register for Weedy 2021, our annual spring conference. Pre-conference on May 14th and 17th, and the main conference, May 18th, 19th, and 20th. For more information and to register, please visit Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Jocelyn Keegan, health IT consultant with the Point of Care Partners and project lead for the Da Vinci Project on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So, Jocelyn, when we when we just uh, uh, before we broke for the uh, commercial there, we were talking about kind of the evolution or the progress uh, between a standard body organization and the government. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about HL7's progress there and, and why, why this is a, a maybe a special moment for HL7 with the Da Vinci uh, Project. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think that... Um you know, this drive to be able to have things eventually named in standard was definitely important to the founders of, of DaVinci, right? But I think that this way that we're working and sort of what's now evolved into this larger spread accelerator program um, of saying, let's take sort of the best and brightest people that understand the business problem together with the people that understand the technical underpinnings and the architecture of how to build these kind of standards has been incredibly powerful. And so I often reflect when I talk with folks about the unexpected surprise, and I would say for me, sort of pleasure in seeing that part of the work that we're doing here isn't necessarily about, I mean, it's definitely the, you know, the sort of the building the implementation guide is the, the core of our work and, and making sure that we, everything is fit for purpose for the business problem we're trying to solve, but that it really is also about building this community and, and bringing these experts together to accelerate how fast we can build standards. Um, and the support that we've gotten from CMS and our and our partners at MITRE, I think, has really been um, an amazing fuel, right, to be able to say, how can we as an industry work together and not be in that world, you know, I think that we often find ourselves in of saying, we don't need to be regulated, let us define our own standards, but then things getting prioritized or getting onto roadmap are the things that are already in reg or pending in regulation. This environment that HL7 has created, I believe, is unique. Um, and it's not the first time we've been here. I think we just, you know, we've been using, you know, very mature, uh, well-defined standards in other areas of the industry. And I think that there's a little bit of a renaissance around this idea of the community building to really drive something that's brand new and net new. And it's critically important for people to participate and come and get involved at HL7 and in the accelerator communities to really make sure that the use cases or the implementation guides that you care about are getting exercised and used and matured so that what actually ends up in the final standard is going to solve the problem, not just for those first early adopters, right, that maybe are tied to a more government line of business or government programs, but that they're going to serve the purposes of the wider commercial market. Um, it's exciting. And I, I firmly believe that there's only a couple times in your career that you're really at a sea change in the way an industry works together. And I believe this moment with FIRE 
and what's happening with DaVinci and the changes in payment models really is that point in time for us um, as an industry today. And uh, it's really incumbent upon all of us to get involved um, and to come and participate. Uh, I think if anybody had shared with me how quickly CMS would start naming DaVinci draft standards into regulation, um, I never would have guessed that it would have happened this early. But I can tell you it has definitely help drive, you know, active implementation of the market and to get things prioritized in people's pipelines, um, you know, so that real product is getting built out of the market, early adoption is happening, and we're really exercising these guides in a way to get real world feedback so that we can make them better for anybody that's going to pick them up and use them. It's, um, it's, been, it's been really exciting. And, and I, I would put another point there, Matthew, which is this is about not just implementing a new technology, when you're talking about shifting the way that we work from these sort of large transactional transactions to more uh, interactive, more real-time interactions, it's really about the business transformation that's happening. And so how are organizations changing really at an at a individual team member by team member basis, how they're working with their partners that are outside their four walls and how do those sort of relationships become more woven together on a day-to-day basis because data is flowing in more real time and that we have this ability to really impact change in patient care because information is available and actually can change the outcome or make an intervention happen that wouldn't have happened um, in a way I think that um, is really making people rethink how they work with their business partners. Very good. And I saw what you did there, Jocelyn, the uh, the Renaissance Da Vinci. I saw that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But actually, what you're talking about, too, sounds also like um, a renaissance or a revolution or a new way of standards development, not not just a, a new standard and a new but the way you went so quickly from developing standards to then, which I would say, you know, with some superficial knowledge of this, right, that there's often a jump from a uh, difference between the group that develops the standards and those that actually use it. And the standards don't actually always apply to who's use it. And I'm not just talking healthcare, right? I'm talking every industry. So it sounds like this Da Vinci project is actually a good model for any standards development and what should happen before the government mandates anything, any, any kind of standard, right? I think it's a really great point, Matthew, and and I'll tell you, um, I affectionately refer to myself as a recovering product manager, uh, and I believe anyone who's ever sat in a software development life cycle has had a moment where they said, who actually wrote this thing and what were they thinking, right? And I think you're right. I think the model that we're using should at least make those moments happen earlier um, and should remove sort of the, the final person picking up these guides to use them for real as they're fully baked. Um, we really should be taking that out of the situation. And and again, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I sound a little wondrous right now, but I don't think that any of us that got involved in DaVinci in the early days had any expectation that, you know, three years later, that there would now be three more. And I think a couple other accelerators pending out there. Um, I think that, you know, really, again, you know, huge credit to the folks at Argonaut to really move people beyond this idea of, you know, Let's get together competitors, friends, foes, and and figure out how to make the railroad tracks connect so that we can differentiate ourselves and our value that we provide to our, our customers and to our partners, um, that we've really been able to grow with that and to really um, help it, um, you know, make this happen uh, in more real time, make this whole idea of developing standards happen in more real time. Uh, and 
you know, it's none of it's perfect, right? It's all on a journey and it's incremental and it will get incrementally better the more people pick these things up and use them. And, um, but the pattern, I think you're right, has forever changed um, on how, how we can apply fractionally dollars, right? From individual organizations to make the, I like to say the flywheel of healthcare standards move faster by putting the right subject matter experts and the right technical technology resources and the right convening power. That momentum piece is incredibly important to get the focus so that we can actually, you know, get standards built faster. Um, I don't, I don't think I, I could have, any of us could have imagined the impact that this work would have in such a short period of time. That's exciting. Um, It is. Talking about one of the partners, and this is uh, where uh, I come from in terms of my day job, right, is what's the payer's role? And it, and it feels as though in, in the evolution of EHR and the clinical health IT start the part that the payers have been kind of out of the loop or not really included because it's been a, a, a provider's issue. Um, but I think this year we're seeing regulations coming down to at least for some of the government payers in terms of interoperability and information blocking. Um, but you're talking about payers all the time when you're talking about the Da Vinci project and having them as a participating partner. So what is what is uh, what do you see the role as payers? Um, what's the expectation that payers should be doing, especially the commercial payers? And, and what should payers expect uh, maybe in the coming years? You know, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think that what you're seeing today, I, I'm going to do a couple of thoughts because um, because I could talk for like a good half hour alone. Just well, I also asked you like six questions to, yeah. at the same time. So that was a little difficult too. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, we made a decision 40 years ago um, that things like a prior authorization were administrative workflow and to really cut apart or push apart clinical workflows from administrative workflows, right? And I think that we have a massive infrastructure that we've invested around payment, which is incredibly important and we need to grow um, on and build on, right? I think that there's so much sunk investment. I'm also a former product person. So I know that it, you very rarely unplug servers. I mean, let's be clear, right? We encapsulate and we encapsulate a lot. We rarely do complete rewrites. So I think that just from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I think that what we're seeing with the shift to value-based care and the projects like DaVinci are showing that we have to bring clinical administrative transaction sets back together. We have to deal with the whole patient and that ultimately what patients care their payer pays for affects how adherent or what services that patient is, is able to, to successfully have, right? And I think that um, that's just a current reality in the payment model that we're in in the U.S. and that largely payers have been outside of that. I think you see sort of on the role of, you know, moving away from sort of everything revolving around the provider and the provider workflow is there is burden. There's massive burden on providers out there. There'd be no one that would disagree with that and that the payers contribute to that um, and that most payers are eagerly trying to figure out how to remove abrasion from those workflows and to ensure that the data can flow that needs to flow and that we need to do that with technology and to make the technology go behind the scenes, right? So that it's not, it, it's literally that just the data is where the data needs to be. Um, I think for me, what I get to see from the seat that I'm in is I'm at the pointy tip of the spear, right? I'm working with the people that actually want to make the change happen. Um, and there's large streams of people behind on both the payer and the provider side moving towards that movement of bringing clinical and administrative back to, um, data back together. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that that fundamentally needs to happen and we're seeing CMS and ONC, I think, in a very unprecedented way, working collaboratively to put out rules that are complementary. And so I think we can continue to anticipate 
to see increased regulation around information blocking across the board on everyone. We can continue to expect to see increased enforcement around making sure patients and whoever's caring for the patients has access to the data that they need and that the payers are now being included at the table. But I also think on that point that you can also see a recognition that the role of the payer has been largely divorced from clinical workflows and that getting information and increasing transparency around patient-specific information at the point of service is incredibly important to have happen so that that dialogue can happen between a payer and a provider or part of the care team about what a patient's actual op- options are based on what their actual health care is. And technologies like FHIR are making that possible in a world today where all of that activity happens via a fax machine or a portal, often in a back office completely separated from patient care, right? So that's where I'm saying the business process transformation that's going to have to happen Um, And it is happening. We're seeing it happen with some of these advancing organizations to really focus on the patient and what the patient needs and getting the right information to that clinical team at the time they need it and making sure the payer can help that patient get the services they need and understand their costs and their options for cost, um, I think are incredibly important. And that CMS and and ONC will continue to play an important role to do that on behalf of patients because we all are one at the end of the day. So. So I think you touched on probably my next question was where <laughs> where do you see where do you see healthcare? What do you want healthcare to look like in in five to ten years? And I'm hearing you know joining the business with the clinical, the administrative with the clinical, but but maybe you as a patient, what do you want to see when you walk into your doctor's do you, office? Do you want my cynical answer or do you want my Pollyannish? Hey, let's start with your cynical, <laughs> and then let's end on a good note. How's that? <laughs> okay, so. So I, I mean, I think that, you know, like any industry, um, I think that sort of the, the how people get paid matters, right? And making sure that we're always aware that there are disincentives um, in place to necessarily make sure that people do the right thing. So I think that the more um, we can use uh, regulation and standards to help drive people to the desired outcomes, I think that's really powerful. And I, and I give my hats off to CMS you know, uh, really, it's a completely nonpartisan, you know, model that they've put in place. It's now lasted, I think, through, you know, um, three or four, if not five administrations, right? When you think about Obama being in office for the full eight years, um, that that really, you know, I think that the promise is there. And I think it is intrinsic. Um, and the responsibility lies on all of us to figure out how to be the change agent inside of your own organization to make this happen. I mean, I think that, you know, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing Vegas and bookmakers, right, the, the money would not be in the favor of American healthcare finally figuring out and getting it done. Right. We've done a great (laughs) job of of avoiding adopting technologies that are well worn and used in other industries. And so, you know, it'll, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with a lot of the transparency rules and the no surprises act around payment. But I think if we can focus on freeing the right data to be available at the right time when a provider needs it, when a patient needs it to make a decision, um, and when a payer needs it so they can actually help their patient or avoid you know, costs that are unnecessary versus using tools as friction and as cost avoidance, I think that would be the ideal world. And I think, again, the promise is there with the shift to APIs, but it's not about the technology, right? It is literally about the business transformation and people believe, believing that they'll make more money doing the right things to make patients healthier than people 
relying on well-trod ways to, um, you know, reduce or remove cost uh, without actually improving care. Very good. That was your, that was your, I think that's ended pretty optimistically, actually. We wove it in there. <laughs> you did. You got to optimism. And, I just can't you, stay in the pessimism for too long. <laughs> and, and, and you, uh, you uh, went over my holiday reading, which is the No Surprises Act, which I find is fascinating. So I think that's great that you're, you're pulling in the, the, the administrative transparency with the clinical transparency. And, and it, it feels as though there's going to be so much data out there. And it's going to be um, it flowing so freely that the business is going to transform whether we, we want it to not, or not. So even if we're stubbornly in our trenches, it's going to pull us along. So I think of it like when I got my first iPhone and I thought, wow, this is kind of not a great phone. <laughs> I have to use the headset to actually use it to be able to hear people. Yeah. Um, and what are these app things? And do I really even need them? Yeah, I'll put my email. I'll put my calendar on my phone. But I mean, really. And, you know, you fast forward. Yep. Many years later. Um, and, uh, and I have a ton of apps I don't use, right? But I have other apps that literally rewired the way that I interact with technology in my life on a day-to-day basis. Um, and that there were a lot of interstitial solutions that came along that sort of bridged that. Um, I don't think very many people use Evites anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, that, that we have the tools in place to make the transformation, uh, and I think it's up to us to actually, you know, advocate for ourselves to make it work. Excellent. Excellent. Great, great note to end on. Before we leave, though, um, any uh, resources, websites you want to point uh, the listeners to today that and touched on anything that we talked about? Yeah, sure. So um, we didn't talk in any detail about the specific use cases for DaVinci at all. Uh, we focus on uh, really five key areas uh, around reducing burden. How do you avoid or reduce the need um, to do prior authorizations? We have another focus area that's around building uh, the APIs to support sharing quality data um, and the attestation around quality data uh, for folks that are in at-risk contracts. Uh, we also have some utility tools to figure out sort of who do we agree to share data with as patients. And, and as you mentioned earlier in the program, how do I share information to tell you who I have that's at high risk? Um, and then we have a set of um, implementation guides that really are about members getting access to their own information or their proxies, the applications they want to use, and then providers and payers being able to share data back seamlessly with each other. Uh, so clinical data exchange between providers and payers, and then supporting information like no- notifications, um, you know, that you've got a patient in your care. Uh, to get more details about the specific use cases, to figure out how to get involved in the project, to actually come to one of our upcoming education events where you can literally hear from the people that wrote the guides and a number of the early implementers in the space, um, I'd encourage you to visit our Confluence webpage. That's actually the communications tool that HL7 uses. And that is, that's at hl7.me uh, forward slash DaVinci News. Uh, and I know that the folks at Weedy will include that with the supporting materials as well as some other fast links to get into the program. Uh, we hold a monthly community roundtable that I encourage people to sign up for our listserv so you can actually hear firsthand from the people that are going through these transformations inside their own organizations and with their partners. And it's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, as I like to say, this is the fun stuff. Uh, come get involved. The, the community is growing quickly. Uh, and uh, and it's really, uh, it's a fantastic time to be getting involved. And I'm probably repeating what you've said throughout this whole uh, podcast, but um, your audience and who HL7 is writing these implementation guides is 
the payers, the providers, the vendors, the the third parties, but also the consumers and the the providers and nurses on the front line. So, so these are these are the the implementation guys. The education is for everybody, literally. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I the way I like to think about fire, uh, and I listened to one of my colleagues from one of the small regional blues plants who was very much a skeptic on fire. I'll say early on, so I won't name him. Um, but, um, but he's tall and has a Southern accent and his son plays baseball. Um, but, um, I think that it's important to note that any project that you couldn't get done before, or that you thought was too small and could never get funding fire and the ability to make this data flow really lowers the bar. And I think something that really hasn't, I think been said out loud, but I think we've sort of referenced is, you know, the power of, you know, my iPhone example is it's the second, third, fourth use of data, right, or connectedness that really allows you to derive that value, whether it's reusing the same API for the second or third or fourth person that's nearly identical, or that ability to be able to now say, oh, now I can get data to this end user and this end user and this end user using the same rails, right, with all the right security and business arrangements in place, but that now all of a sudden things you thought you were never able to do, you can now actually do because the data has become liquid and you can actually make it work on behalf of you and your patients. Very good. So lots of room for new ideas too. The next use case. Yep. Excellent. Any closing words, Jocelyn? We've enjoyed having you on. It's been a great discussion. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of inspired by your passion. Uh, this is the fun stuff, and I'm really excited and thankful for we to give us the opportunity to be able to uh, come and share what we're doing in DaVinci, um, and I encourage people to get involved in the project. Terrific. And uh, Weedy, thanks you. Uh, this has been Jocelyn Keegan, Health IT Consultant with Point of Care Partners and Project Lead for HL7's DaVinci Project. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solution for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.